0: Friday, January tenth, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, you might have noticed that for the first time, I don't have my essential co-host, Indre Viscontis, here with me. As Indre told you on a recent show, she was then about to have a baby on Saturday. That happened. She had a healthy baby boy, and so, not surprisingly, she's taking some time off. She'll be back with us in a little while. Congratulations to her. So, for this show, I went ahead and did it just me, and I talked with Deborah Blum. She's a science writer who I've known for a long time, and whose wonderful best-selling book, The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York, was just turned into a film by PBS. The book tells the story of Charles Norris and Alexander Gettler, a forensic medicine duo who came into a situation in New York in the early 1920s where really you could poison people with impunity and not get caught. And these two pioneering forensic scientists did something about that. And here's a clip from our interview uh, in which Deb Blum describes and tells us a little bit about her protagonists and what they did.
1: What they did is they said, this, it does not work. We cannot let science just sit here and say, we have no tools. We have no way to catch this. We have no way to protect people. We're going to turn that around. And that's really what they did.
0: So we had a wide-ranging discussion about the science of poisoning, both malicious and also environmental poisoning. So that will be our interview today. But before that, I wanna get into some science happenings in the news. In much of the United States this week, it was beyond freezing. And naturally, this led to all kinds of discussion about climate change, including plenty of knee-jerk dismissals of the idea that climate change is happening, based on the weather outside. And incidentally, this is just a terribly, terribly weak argument and bad way of thinking about the climate issue. Not only does cold not disprove global warming, but there's actually a subtle way in which climate change might be influencing and contributing to extreme cold weather over the United States. So to explain that, I called up one of my favorite meteorology writers, Eric Holthouse, who writes about weather for quartz. He also runs Weather Mob, a crowdsourcing site for people to share conversations and information about the weather. And he was previously a weather reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So before our long interview with Deb Blum, let's do a short interview about what's going on with climate and extreme cold. Eric Holthouse, thanks for being here with us, giving us a little bit of your time. You're welcome. So let me start out with a little entertainment. Uh, Rush Limbaugh recently stated that this meteorological thing, the polar vortex, is a media creation, at least the concept is a media creation, to push global warming. And here's a clip of him talking recently on his radio show.
1: They've got to find a way to attach this to the global warming agenda. And they have. It's called the polar vortex. The dreaded polar vortex. Do you know what the polar vortex is? Have you ever heard of it? Well, they just created it for this
0: week. So Russia's not right. There's actually a long meteorological history to using this word. But with the recent very cold weather, you wrote recently that it might actually have a a climate connection in some sense. Explain how that works.
2: Sure. There is a new line of research in the last year or two put forward that because of the rapid melting of Arctic sea ice, especially in, in the summer, we are experiencing a shift in the jet stream strength and location. Um, and obviously that's gonna affect mid-latitude weather. Um, so it's still a fresh theory. There's a lot of, of debate right now on this exact uh, piece of climate change science. Um, the basics are that since the Arctic is warming at about twice the rate of the rest of the Northern hemisphere, um, the difference in temperature between the Arctic and the uh, the rest of the mid latitudes is decreasing uh, so the jet stream, which is driven by that that uh, that difference in temperature then has been shown to weaken over the last uh ten to fifteen years or so by about ten percent so that is um a weaker jet stream is typically a wavier jet stream, and there's um, more of a, uh, a likelihood that the tremendously cold air in the northern Arctic, you know, where it's still 24 hours of, of darkness right now, that can be shunted far south, like like we're seeing this week. So, the the jet stream right now, which is not typical for this time of year or really any time, is running basically directly north to south right along the spine of the rockies basically so we have the west coast of of the u.s um los angeles i think set a record high uh temperature they're nice and hot in the in the 80s yeah and uh, i did an interview in in whitehorse yukon this morning um wanted to know about all the the cold and snow weather meanwhile it's plus five degrees Celsius there right now, which uh, you know, is not typical for an, uh, a place just you know, right next to the Arctic Circle in the middle of January. So we're, we're getting extremes on both ends. We're getting uh, extreme warmth um, uh, along the west coast in Alaska and extreme cold temperature, as everyone knows, in the, in the eastern United States and eastern Canada.
0: So I think you've done a, a great job explaining this thing about how global warming through warming the Arctic might mess with the jet stream. And this is sort of large scale circulation pattern that that controls a lot of the weather that we experience. But I, I understand that this is sort of new and controversial. I mean, how sure are we uh, that we should be going with this idea that that's actually what's happening?
2: There's research that just out even a couple days ago, um, there was a, a criticism of this theory saying that uh, there are no really robust, statistically significant trends in blocking patterns, which are those um, persistent areas of high pressure that tend to shift the jet stream in a direction that it normally doesn't travel. Um, so they, they were criticizing the, the earlier study, which is from a researcher um, at Rutgers University in New Jersey, that's saying that there are statistically significant trends of an increasing amount of waviness of the of the jet stream, basically, and, and a slowdown in the speed of the jet stream. From my meteorological intuition um, as a scientist, I think that the there's some weight to to that, um, to the fact that you know, if you have a decreasing contrast in the temperatures between the Arctic and the mid-latitudes. By definition, that must affect the jet stream. That's just how the atmospheric circulation works. Uh, Now, whether or not we can actually show that the signal that we're seeing is due to climate change or if it's due to a longer term decadal climate variability, that's kind of where the science is right now is saying, is this a natural uh, variability that we're just seeing um, that happens to be coinciding with the years that Arctic sea ice is hitting record lows, or is this because of uh, the fact that the Arctic is, is, uh, is melting so quickly?
0: Well, I, I agree that it makes physical sense. Uh, and again, I think you described it well. I mean, basically, there's a less temperature difference between the, you know, the equator and the North Pole. That's what drives the jet stream. So, of course, the jet stream is going to be messed with. Uh, couldn't you also just make it even simpler and say, look, you change the Arctic, And you changed it fast. And the National Academies just had a study which said that it was looking at abrupt climate change and the possibility of that happening. And one of the things in the study was that, well, there is one abrupt climate change that's already happened. It's the Arctic, right? We consider this an abrupt climate change because the sea ice has melted so fast. So couldn't you just say, well you know, the burden of proof is on anybody who says this is not going to affect the weather because you just had an abrupt
2: climate change. Exactly. And that's kind of my, my perspective from this. And, and, you know, I've been criticized as well as other people that are, are kind of talking about this theory by saying, you know, if you have a, a theoretical uh, impact of climate change, this is a predicted consequence of the Arctic warming faster than the rest of, of the planet. Uh, and you're you're starting to see statistical proof of that and you're starting to see increasing extreme weather um yeah i i agree you know the burden of of proof is it's is to say okay why is this now a coincidence rather than an expected result from a scientific line of of research
0: Well, let me just ask you one last question, and uh, thank you so much for explaining all this. So, what do you say to the people who are out there everywhere who are basically inferring from the fact that it's cold or snowing that global warming has gone away?
2: Well, I I mean, the joke that I've been trying to make that's not really working is that um, you know, increasing um, carbon dioxide emissions is not going to change the tilt of the Earth's axis. I mean, we're still going to have winter. We're still going to have a a large period of, of of months of the of the year where um the arctic doesn't get any sunlight that's going to cool it down um so the question is is like you said um when you have uh a short uh amount of time where these things have been happening so we have rapid climate change in the arctic right now that's only been going on really severely for the last 15 to 20 years that's not enough time that uh, that climatologists normally use 30 years as kind of the bulletproof length of time for any trend to be noticed. We haven't reached that point yet. So the fact is that the climate is changing so fast, we can't even really gather data quickly enough to to prove the, or disprove theory. So we're, we're kind of flying by the seat of the pants in a sense in that we have to make the best out of what data we have. And it's really kind of difficult to see things happening so quickly and not being able really to explain them fast enough. Like you said, when you have abrupt climate change, there's going to be un- unpredicted consequences of that happening. So uh, we're scrambling to try to predict some things in some cases. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I fully support this scientific um, peer review inquiry onto this specific mechanism. When you have a couple of years debate about a certain topic, some in in the in the background we're emitting record co2 at the same time so at some point you have to just ask yourself what's when is it going to be enough for us to take action great well
0: listen eric thank you so much for being with us and helping us make sense of this weird thing that it's extremely cold and yet global warming might be involved thanks so much you're welcome okay so with that let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with deborah
2: blum This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. I want to send out a thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. Reviews go a long way in letting new listeners see what we're all about. And if you're looking for a way to support us, it only takes a few seconds to do, so please consider it. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: Deb Blum, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you and to be able to congratulate you about the adaptation of your really great and best-selling book, *The Poisoner's Handbook*, into a film by PBS. So let me just first ask you what it's like. What is it like uh, to experience your work being transformed in this way? A lot of writers never actually experience that.
1: That's true. Uh, of course, first I'm absolutely thrilled and thank you again. And yeah, it's been as you know. Options are one thing, and actually seeing it come to the screen is another. It's been uh, about two years since the book got option, so I feel like I'm on one giant exhale about it. It finally happened.
0: Tell us a little bit about how about this story of these proto-forensic scientists or maybe the first modern forensic scientists, Charles Norris, not Chuck Norris, Charles Norris, and Alexander <laughs> Gettler
1: <laughs> in the 1920s. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they ever called Charles Norris Chuck. So Charles Norris was the first professional medical examiner in New York City, and he did this really pioneering, unexpected thing for the time. He hired a forensic chemist, the first toxicologist ever to work for an American city, and that was Alexander Gettler. And the two of them, and this is really my favorite part of the story, I think, aside from my love of evil chemistry, is bringing these guys back into awareness because they were so amazing. But Gettler and Norris together, they were very different, but they were both completely obsessive and dedicated, really built the foundations of uh, forensic investigation today. They were so determined. It's, it's really an amazing story.
0: No, it's it's wonderful, and they, I mean, they, you know, sort of like a Batman and Robin duo, they solve a lot of crime, right?
1: <laughs> That's exactly right, and they bring their very different skills to crime-solving. I mean, Norris is really a crusader. He, you know, he wants to build forensics, which had been real, very sketchy. Right? People did not know how to catch poisoners. Uh, the evidence was often unreliable. Uh, a lot of people associated it with an existing, very corrupt coroner system. So that the police and district attorneys didn't even want to hear from scientists. And he was sort of had it was on a single-minded mission to turn that around. And Gettler, you know, he wanted the science to be right. He wanted the science to be inarguable. And so they brought those two, you know, different but sort of interlocking obsessions to catching poisoners and tackling really big public health problems. I think both of them believed that, you know, this was partly about crime, but it was equally importantly about public safety.
0: And because of the, I understand because of the lack of good science people were getting away with it a lot. I mean, it's not nearly as easy to get away with these kinds of things as it was then. Yes,
1: when Norris came to office in 1918, uh, the same year that the city of New York actually published a report saying that poisoners could operate with impunity in New York City. And if you think about it, the previous century, the 19th century, is often called the Golden Age of Poisoners. Uh, And why? Well, because... Poisons were everywhere, as in fact they are today, and but they were not detectable in a body at all. So if you could find the right poison, and probably one of the most popular at that point was arsenic. I mean, think about arsenic for a minute. It's tasteless. So you can put it into anything and your victim doesn't know. It's odorless. They can't find it that way either. It mimics the symptoms of a natural illness. So often doctors didn't even recognize that it was a poisoner and you can't find it in the body. So even if you're suspicious, you can't prove that that person was poisoned. So it was no wonder it was a golden age for poisoners and what people like Gettler and Norris did. And they were building on some really excellent work that really started in the mid-19th century and kind of creaked along slowly until the 20th but what they did is they said, this, it does not work. We cannot let science just sit here and say, we have no tools, we have no way to catch this, we have no way to protect people, we're going to turn that around. And that's really what they did.
0: So the film and and the book take us back to this era, and I think I'm quoting the film, uh, science played virtually no part in law enforcement. So now we have almost, it seems like maybe the opposite problem every Everybody wants science to do everything in law enforcement. We're kind of obsessed with science, or certainly in the media depictions of law enforcement, there's arguably too much, or it's too pat and it's made too simple. What do you think of that?
1: I agree with that. And, you know, police, you'll know, hear police detectives actually. Uh, talking about what they, they'll they call the CSI effect, where people watch especially these crime shows on popular television and then they think, well, we'll get all the answers from forensics. That, you know, that a feather will blow across the room and that's it. Murderer's nailed. And it really doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, it can add su- good science, even really good science, is answer some questions, but they fit into this complicated puzzle that detectives have to put together. And then sometimes, even when science gives you an answer, it doesn't always lead you to the murderer. And then, frankly, while I'm on this role, um, we don't fund our forensics labs well enough, right? So a lot of the you know, gee whiz stuff that we see on television uh, the, the overworked, underfunded state toxicology and forensics labs, they can't afford that equipment, right? It's a wonderful television fantasy, but it isn't always real life.
0: So, another thing that's different, it seems to me, is that you have the birth of forensic science. Okay, so now we've had it, at, you know, 80 years, um, 100 years almost. What they didn't have then, I would imagine, is forensic pseudoscience. Uh, we had plenty of time to develop that. And so, you actually get a lot of serious. Uh, charges from people like the National Academies that a lot of the forensic techniques out there don't actually work. And people are going around using them, but they haven't validated them properly.
1: Right. I mean, when they are overstated, so there's been criticisms of forensics methods. There's been certainly some scandals, modern scandals in uh, forensic laboratories. And this, again, I think for me goes back to the really underfunded, overworked state of these laboratories in which, uh, you know, you've had the occasional real bad actor in a forensic lab who just makes up the results or fudges the results because they can't keep up and they don't want to admit it. Um, so, you know, you also have that kind of problem. I, I think frontline actually looked at some of those problems in forensic labs as well. Whereas my story, it, you know, because I'm writing about these two, <laughs> phenomenally focused, have to make this work kind of guys. That was not so much a problem, right? There was no let's make it up. They were trying to correct decades of making it up. But they were doing something, I think, going back for a minute here, they, they became so credible. People complained about it, right? They built the science. There were actually defense attorneys by the 1930s who would say, uh, when Alexander Gettler testifies in a courtroom, it doesn't matter what we do because everyone believes them. So you started seeing sort of the leading edge of that too much faith in this. Uh, you know, even in their lifetime, they had turned this around.
0: One aspect of the book that we we didn't talk about yet that um, I think really adds depth and it also goes some way towards redefining what you might think of as poison is its treatment of what's going on with the whole alcohol situation during the same same era, which is prohibition and people are drinking a poison, Uh, methanol, right, because they can't get ethanol (laughs) because it's um, because of prohibition. So tell us a little bit about that, too.
1: Right, well, both Keller and Norris fought prohibition from the beginning, and their early point was um People are going to keep drinking, which was exactly what happened. And if they can't get ethanol, and ethanol is the form of alcohol that is in all the liquor, legal liquor, right, that we consume today, wine, beer, cocktails, whatever, um, then they're going to make their own. And the risk when you make your own is that you get a much more poisonous form of alcohol called methanol um, or wood alcohol. And the big difference, I actually love this, is that we metabolize it ethanol pretty well. People still die of ethanol overdoses, right? We've all heard of them. But for the most part, our bodies can process that pretty well into, and break it down into harmless ingredients like water and carbon dioxide. We can't do that with methanol. Our bodies actually metabolize it to two fairly formidable poisons, formaldehyde and formalin formic acid. And so we just stew in this you know, sort of growing amount of poison in the body. So people did do that. People, you know, they wanted to drink. They didn't have, you know, golden waves of grain to distill, so they distilled their furniture. And you start seeing almost from the beginning of Prohibition, this wave of alcohol-related poisonings. They drank industrial alcohol. They drank fuel alcohol. They drank Sterna, right? You name it, people were still drinking. And as the government, and this was something that I wrote about in the book, which was really important to me. As the government realized that people were still drinking and that law enforcement wasn't working, they started to develop poisons to make industrial alcohol, which was being stolen by bootleggers and redistilled ever more poisonous, thinking, oh, people won't drink this because it's too poisonous. People won't drink this. But they did. I mean, yeah, they didn't know. It wasn't labeled. And so you got this wave. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were killed by this government poisoning of alcohol.
0: Wow. Um, I, I'm tempted to make an uh... <laughs> Make reference to what has just happened in Colorado with the legalization of pot. I mean, you have to think sometimes that, uh, you know, if people are going to do this stuff anyway, uh, then by trying to stop them from doing it, you're in effect creating a system in which it might end up being more dangerous. Maybe that's true for a lot of things.
1: I think that's exactly right, Chris. And I also think when you see yourself as holding the high moral ground, that's actually often a dangerous position from which to make decisions, right? I'm more moral than you. I'm more right than you. I'm more righteous than you. The ends justify the means in my moral crusade, right? And you certainly have seen that. Uh, and a lot of other complicated factors in the war on drugs. And you probably remember, boy, I'm thinking it was late 60s, early 70s. The U.S. government sprayed marijuana crops in Mexico with paraquat, which was a, you know, fairly poisonous herbicide, and so that people were smoking poisoned marijuana. You know, it's not the, fir- the This may- was the first time that I was able to document the government doing this, but it certainly wasn't the last.
0: Wow, I had no idea there was that close of an analogy. Yes. So, sort of the same After
1: thing. I wrote the Poisoner's Handbook, people started writing me about Paraquat. They, Did you know? Do you remember? So, I mean, lots of people were, you know, the government has this very shady history. When And I do think that, I mean, we don't only see it in wars on drugs and alcohol, but all other higher moral callings. They, I, You know, I tend to think because they can be Um, What do I want? You know, uh, like serious, like the Crusades, the higher moral calling or, you know, the Spaniards whipping the poor Native Americans into shape in the name of Catholicism when this country was first settled. When you see yourself on that higher plane and everyone else is kind of down below you doing the wrong thing, you could do really dangerous things.
0: Well, I want to also talk about um, what you're up to now in your writing. You blog for one of our partner organizations, Wired, but you've also started um, this column at the New York Times called Poison Pen, where you talk about, you know, a different kind of poison, not the kind that's maliciously um, used by someone who directly wants to kill you, but uh, environmental poisons and toxic chemicals. Um, So tell us a little bit about that beat.
1: Yeah, Poison Pen's been really interesting to me because I actually, when I got my grad degree, I wanted to be an environmental writer and I took classes in environmental toxicology and then sort of veered off into more classic science writing. So I think to myself, man, I have really come back to my roots doing Poison Pen for the Times and it really looks at toxic chemicals in your everyday life. So there I've written about... Lipstick and nail polish, arsenic and drinking water, lead in your purse and shoes, right? And we talk, it's a monthly column, and we talk every month about, well, what, you know, what angle on sort of the toxic everyday life will we explore? And I have to say, probably more than my blog at Wired in which I just allow myself often to have fun with chemistry or explore murder. Uh, working for the Times has made me a much more suspicious person <laughs> about what I eat and drink and use. That's been a surprise to me.
0: Huh. Because you're investigating, I mean, why, why would that happen? Because, you're, because of the topics you've been taking up, they've actually just made you think about things differently?
1: I think it's because I've realized how poorly the U.S. government regulates these things. Once you start looking at, in, in, I mean, just as an example, once you start looking at compounds and cosmetics and, the, you know, the compounds that we find in cosmetics, uh, you know, which tend to be uh, in the endocrine disruptor family, say, or formaldehyde and nail polish, um, are not always, well, formaldehyde is a non bad actor, and the science on endocrine disruptors is, you know, still something where we're trying to figure out what the major risk groups are and who we should worry about the most, I think, to some extent. But what you realize is that other countries, notably in Europe, you know, regulate these so much better than we do. I mean, just to use cosmetics for an example, uh, we're basically still regulating cosmetics by the 1938 Food, Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. There's been almost no updating to the regulations that were established in the early 20th century, Um, you know, because there's been a lot of pushback from corporations against establishing those regulations regulations. So if you take something like nail polish, some of the compounds that are permitted in the United States of nail polish in uh, are ba- have been banned in Europe for more than a decade, right? So I found myself, at, and it's a learning, you know, any bead, as you know, is kind of a learning experience. The, the more I get into sort of the nitty gritty, and I am not standing here saying that anyone is dropping dead from applying nail polish. But I have found myself warier about what we as a country allow into some of our compounds because it has taught me that uh, we don't regulate these nearly as well as we should.
0: So to me, uh, writer to writer, what what I think about this, uh, among other things, is that, gosh, this is a hard beat, right? Because... First, you've got a substance, okay, some kind of chemical. Oftentimes, its name is something that people have never even heard of, like a phthalate or something like that, right? You've got the substance they've never heard of, and then you've got the science that is really hard to pin down um, on how bad it is at what dose. And you have to do all of that, right? I mean, it's not the easiest topic to try to do.
1: no you 're Absolutely right, I mean and phthalates are a good example of that because you know people class them in the endocrine disruptor family and uh, but what does that actually mean right? how, how what, what are they actually disrupting, and what are the, if they actually do that? What are those effects, and are there age specific windows where they 're more risky? And do we fully understand them? And the answer to the last is no, we don't fully understand them, right? We haven't invested in enough research yet or, you know, done enough research yet to nail those questions down. So I am always saying to myself, you know, one, I'm against sort of what I think of as generalized chemophobia, right? Not all chemicals. I hate the kind of coverage where you, chemical equals evil, because I know that's not true, even though I write about a lot of evil chemistry. And Seca, I don't want to scare people about things that are not necessarily as scary as you might think if you follow advocacy reporting on some of these compounds, right? And, and just to give you uh, an example of that, there was an announcement that Walmart was going to come out with a list of 10 compounds that they were going to ban from, you know, uh, personal care products sold at Walmart and so I get fly people write about me about this stuff all the time and they wrote me and they said Are you, "Do you? wouldn't you like to write about this and I said no I wouldn't because I don't know what you're banning and I'm simply not going to write a story that says 10 mysterious evil chemicals you know when you can come back to me and say here's the first compound we're banning and when I can do some research and try to put that compound in some kind of context yeah but until that point I don't think my mission is to sort of cast a a general scare banner over the subject of chemistry. I think my mission, if you will, is to try to drill this stuff down. So even when I was writing about nail polish, which was the last thing I did for The Times, You'll see, and it's a very short piece because <laughs> it was in their Ask Well section. You'll see, I'll say, well, here's the risk group, right? You know, the, the concern is really for young children, people who suck on their fingernails, um, uh, pregnant women. We're not talking about everyone uh, be freaking out about nail polish. Here's what we think are the risk groups. And I always try to get that in there because I think that's really important.
0: Well, I I told you before we did this interview, what I wanted to do was talk uh, at the end here a little bit about some of the modern poisons. And they don't have to be, again, ones used maliciously, but they could be ones that are still environmental that are around us somehow. somehow. You know, what are the top poisons now? Probably they're different uh, than they were in the 20s. What do you think they are? And maybe tell us about a couple of them.
1: Well, I don't think, you know, some of them are like long-lasting, durable, dangerous things. Uh, so I still write a lot about lead. I write about lead and accessories and lead and lipstick for the Times, for instance. And lead is one of those uh, naturally occurring metals that were, are unambiguously bad. There, as a poison, there's not one <laughs> redeeming thing you can say about lead. It's just bad. And... I like to remind people that it's still around, we're still exposing ourselves to it, and everyone's at risk from lead, right? It's, so to me, that one's really important, and we're still duking that out. I mean, California just won in December a fight with lead paint makers. They won a judgment where paint makers, and, and this took years, and the paint makers hired hundreds of lawyers. But they wanted judgment that they had to, that pet leaded paint was a public nuisance, and the paint makers had to set aside more than a billion dollars to try to remove it, you know, from homes in California. So we, you know, we still fight that out. Um, arsenic is really interesting to me. Arsenic, you know, has been around. Well, it's another naturally occurring poison, but homicidally for a long time. But we're just realizing what a very serious environmental toxin it is, both in food and water. So I, and arsenic is also unambiguously bad for you, right? It's bad at a high dose, and it's bad at a very low dose. So it's fun for me to write, and that sounds kind of creepy, I know, but it's fun for me to write about these things that are just bad, right? You don't have to mess around. This is bad for you. Try to avoid it. Carbon monoxide, which, you know, I do Google alerts on poison and poisoning and I... There are some days where my dose of 10 news stories about people made sick or dead are all carbon monoxide, especially in the winter, especially after a big storm or in cold temperatures, right, because people uh, are running their generators if their power fails or their furnace. It leaks or you know all these other crazy things that happen, so all of those guys you know have been around for a long time and and they're a reminder that we are smarter than we were about poisonous things in the days of Getler and Norris, but we're not as smart as we should be
0: yeah, and there some of these are just all around us. I mean one thing that's interesting about arsenic is that no, this is one of the few, I guess where you're not really pointing a finger at some company uh that is making products this is coming from the ground you know it's part of part of the earth right
1: that's exactly right. I mean, there are, there's some evidence, especially in produce imported from China, that they are still using some of the old lead arsenate pesticides. So when you saw all the flurry a couple of years ago about arsenic and apple juice, that was really concentrate imported from China. So you do get some of that, but mostly it's naturally occurring arsenic. It's, uh, you know, we're kind of stuck with it. So the question is, are there ways to protect yourself against it, right? Should we? Are there ways to farm differently, so plants, rice being one of my favorite, doesn't take it up from the soil in quite the same way? And, uh, and, uh, and, and that's an important part of the story too. not just, "Oh, this is bad, but, oh, what can we do to be smart in the ways we protect ourselves?"
0: Tell us about a couple of the other ones that I think are used by people who uh, want to do something ill. Uh, So there's ethylene glycol, ricin, and polonium two hundred and ten.
1: Yes. So now we get sort of into evil, homicidal territory (laughs) to some extent, which is so much fun, like you said. (laughs) Yeah. So ethylene glycol is the primary constituent in antifreeze, and it's actually number one of the number one homicidal poisons in the United States. Um, well, So why? Again, what makes a good poison? It's easy to get, right? And it's not like we are out there cooking up some new weird poisons. We tend to rely on the ones that we can just get. Uh, it, and ethylene glycol is, is very sweet and and does not have an off-putting taste there was a woman in georgia a few years ago who killed two husbands with it by putting it into jello right which tells you just how deceptively comfortable its taste is. And there was actually a couple, there was a case earlier this year with a doctor at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston who had a fight with another doctor there and just put it in his coffee and told him that it was an artificial sweetener. Right? So you see people turn to it a lot. It's a very nasty poison. It metabolizes to form these very sharp crystals, calcium oxalate crystals that will slice and dice your kidneys, right? So, and so here's me also doing a public health thing. It kills a lot of animals. One, I also track people who poison their neighbor's pets, and that's the number one choice, right? They'll mix it into meatballs or something and throw it over the yard and kill a dog. It's actually horrible. All of it's horrible. Um, But there's many campaigns, again this is regulation, to require the makers of antifreeze to put a bittering agent in it and I would love to see that happen nationwide. I mean there's there's no reason, I'm not arguing for getting rid of the compound but I, I am saying there's no reason for it to be sold in this kind of deceptively sweet form. Um, So that's one, and I think that one's really uh, uh, important in terms of, you know, kind of giving you a sense of what uh, an average poisoner is like. Right, they're looking around for something that's easy, doesn't necessarily leave a, a fingerprint in that no one says, "Oh, how suspicious!" You had to buy antifreeze, right? Now every time you see someone buy antifreeze, you're going, "Huh." Uh, so that's one. That's one good example of that, I guess. Um, Polonium-210 is interesting because it's just been very much in the news. You prob. You know, it's a radioactive element related to, it's actually in the uranium decay chain but it's super active in the fact that it just spits radiation, it decays much faster and it's much more active than uranium and it, it kind of rose to public uh, view in the mid about 2006 I think when Russia uh, Russia sent some assassins to London to kill a dissident, Alexander Litvinenko and then um, there was a whole kerfluffle for about the last year in which uh, Al Jazeera was running a campaign suggesting that Yasser Arafat was also killed by polonium 210. And I actually wrote about this for almost a year on and off of my blog. It was a wonderful opportunity for a poison writer because I was skeptical, which is always fun, and but it allowed me to talk a lot about radioactive poisons, and it really allowed me to look at the forensics. How do you detect the poison that burns itself out so quickly, right? Does this even make sense? Why would you use this? And so it's just really fun to look at that. And then I looked at uh, the fact that uh, polonium-210, if, if you're worried about your own exposure, uh, the highest exposure you can get in the United States is from smoking tobacco. Um, and there's all kinds of really interesting research about, the fa- about why the, that particular element ends up in tobacco leaves and what the exposure is. So I wrote about that too, and that was fun.
0: Well, I don't think most people know uh, all this stuff, and I think that they're going to be fascinated by it. So maybe this is why writing about poison, just, you know, it's a story that you get to keep on telling.
1: You know, I think it says a lot about who we are in both the, you know, it it looks at the darkest part of who we are, because poisoners are, you know, so creepy and cold and calculating But it also looks at the best that we are in a lot of ways because most of us are surrounded by really these really bad things and we don't try to harm people with them. Most of us work to try to protect people. Most of us really want, I think, to see our chemical world be one that makes people safer. And so, you know, it's a really interesting way to explore our history and who we are.
0: Well, I think you've you've done it wonderfully, and people can read the book, and they can check out the film. We'll tell them how to get that uh, later on in the show. So thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. I really always enjoy being on your smart show.
0: I just want to remind our listeners you can get Deborah Blum's great book, The Poisoner's Handbook, on Amazon or your preferred site for buying books. And you can watch for free the new PBS film of the book by going to video.pbs.org. You should be able to find it very easily from that site, video.pbs.org. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, you can visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at InquiringShow and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Acquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. I'm your host, Chris Mooney.
2: At Amica Insurance...